taking her through history. It's Nescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo library with a few pit stops along the way. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them. That is pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. And we've got two more games for you. The last games of May of 1993 for the Super NES. They're, uh... You know, I know I wouldn't say either of these is uh, the most exciting game we've covered, but there is, I, I think, a little bit more to both of these than we were expecting. What uh, what have we got today? Well, we've got uh, Vegas Dreams to start off with. So, you know, you can dream about Vegas with your Super Nintendo, as I know we, we've all wanted to do at some point or another. And then we've got a game featuring uh, a very important lady in uh, the, the pantheon of classic video games. Today we are talking about Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego. That's right. And that's uh, that's pretty exciting. Uh, Carmen Sandiego, major late 80s and, and 90s computer game series. And this is its first time showing up on the Super Nintendo here, though not the last time. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about the history of the franchise today and and some other games that came out for it. And like Emmy just mentioned, there will be another Carmen Sandiego game coming up, uh, I think before too long. So we'll be talking a little bit more Carmen Sandiego in the future. But uh, yeah, as for today, I guess we'll get into it. Do we just want to want to start off with some with some Vegas stakes? I, I said Vegas dreams earlier, didn't I? This is Vegas stakes. You kind of merged the names for the uh, the Japanese and the 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 American version of this is in, in Japan. It's Las Vegas Dream, in America, Vegas Stakes. So yes, right, Vegas Stakes. So my apologies. So uh, yeah, let's talk about some Vegas Stakes. Let's get grilling. Yes, big juicy Vegas Stakes. Mm-hmm. steaks at the buffets in vegas i think that was sort of a, a famous thing about it so like crab legs and steaks uh you know to to keep you in the casino and playing longer i don't know maybe crab legs and steaks would have helped this game a little bit i, I don't know it might have you know uh but in any case this is vegas steaks uh despite what i said earlier <laughs> this comes to us from how laboratory and nintendo oddly enough and also perhaps uh, a company called Dice. And no, not the Swiss company that gave us Battlefield and Mirror's Edge. Swedish. Dice is a Swedish studio, not a Swiss studio. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Apparently I was just not on my game this episode. Uh, this is a different company that was founded in Japan in 1990. Uh, the information I could find on them described the company's creation as an act that was done at the behest of Satoru Iwata. Uh, I don't entirely know what that means. Um, this actually isn't the first game that the company produced or had their hands on, or I don't actually know. We'll get into it in a bit. Uh, but a year prior to this, they also have credits in a game called Othello World, which never made it outside of Japan. That is a game in which you are playing Othello, or sometimes called Reversi, uh, against characters from traditional fairy tales and the works of Lewis Carroll and Shakespeare, because, you know, Othello. Othello, yeah. <laughs> uh, their connection with HAL Laboratory and Iwata would also lead DICE to getting to make The Adventures of Lolo for Game Boy, or maybe... Make is too strong a word. Again, uh, put a pin in it. We'll get there. Uh, That game also never left Japan, unfortunately, which is why uh, 
a lot of you have probably probably weren't even aware that there was an Adventures of Lolo game on Game Boy. They also appear to have had some sort of relationship with Atlas, having credits on two Megami Tensei offshoots, uh, those games being Maijin Tensei for the Super Famicom and Another Bible for Game Boy. Great name, that one. Probably don't need to ask too many questions about why that one didn't make it over here. <laughs> Dice would also have some kind of involvement with SimCity 64, which has the misfortune of being developed for the ill-fated 64 disk drive, and as a result, would also never get released outside of Japan. Uh, very few games in DICE's sparse gameography would actually make it to other territories. Uh, the only things they worked on other than that that made it over here, as far as I can tell, are ports of a few Sega racing games that came out in the early aughts. Their last credit, according to Moby Games, is a port of a game called Sega Rally Championship to handhelds in 2003. Though Giant Bombs Wiki says that this game is actually a port of Sega Rally 2 and was just given the name Sega Rally Championship, which is actually a, an entirely different racing game that Sega released in arcades in 1995. Go figure. And in case you were curious, the handhelds that they ported that game to were the Game Boy Advance and Nokia N-Gage, meaning that this company has the distinction of having credits for games on the 64-disc drive and the N-Gage. That is a <laughs> sad trombone sound right there. The company is still around and is, from what I could tell from their website, which Google did a pretty poor job translating for me, are a consulting firm. And I have to wonder if maybe that's what they just always were and that they maybe never were actual developers of games. What might make some sense is if Iwata knew somebody in the industry or who had just left the industry and convinced them to start a consultancy so that he could work with them and, you know, make their relationship official and actually pay them in an official manner. That's pure speculation on my part. I'm not entirely sure um, what DICE's role in any of the games that they have credits for Mo on uh, Moby Games is, but uh, that's DICE. That's probably more information than you needed about this little company, but there you go. That's the kind of podcast we are. That's a Snescapades difference right there. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and this was a HAL game. Uh, I believe that I saw in the credits that Satoru Iwata was the executive producer on this. Indeed you did. What to say about the game itself? This is, uh, I believe, actually a sequel to uh, a game that came out on the NES. That one was called Vegas Dreams. So that's where I got mixed up. Like I kind of alluded to in the intro, there's a little more to this as far as this being a casino game simulator than uh, than I would have expected going in, but still not. There's still not a ton here. What's kind of the setup for this game? So you and four friends are going to Vegas and you guys have uh, big dreams, big Vegas dreams, you might say, of becoming millionaires. So you're all going to hit the casinos. All you got is a thousand bucks to your name. But God darn it, you're going to be the next big millionaire out of Vegas with that thousand bucks, you arrive at the hotel, you write down your name, and then you invite one of your four friends to go with you because you all agree to go in pairs, despite the fact that there's five of you. Yeah, seems like you're kind of being a jerk to somebody in that car, but I don't know. Um, in any case, uh, you pick somebody to go with you and they can offer you advice while you're at the, you know, whichever game you decide to play. I don't really know if there's a big difference uh, among the four friends. I don't know. During the during the intro, they each mention 
the games that they are like personally interested in. Uh-huh. Um, like I think Isabel is like, yeah, I'm going to play poker and um, Marianne or whatever her name is, the, the like the white lady with the long hair. She is like, like, yep, it's, it's crap slot machines and, uh, and roulette for me. So maybe they offer better advice on their chosen games if you take them. I don't know. I couldn't really discern any real difference other than that I did not really profit from taking Marianne's advice on uh, on roulette. Yeah. Like every time she was like, yeah, bet on red. It's definitely going to be red this time. And it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, the, the whole thing with the friends makes this a little bit more interesting than just, you know, a straightforward, hey, you know, pick your game and play it sort of game, but not by a lot. I wish they'd gone further with it, honestly. I wish there was some real, like, visual novel stuff here that would happen with the friends, like, hangout sessions and stuff at, like, the bar. Or, like, you know, a little bit of, like, a developing personal story. Because, like, as it is, uh, this feels like a very bleak setup for a game. (laughs) Like, five people, each with $1,000, piling into a car and going to Vegas to essentially gamble away their money on the the low, low chance that they're going to become millionaires. (laughs) It's like that actual episode of Friends where they went to Vegas, except, you know, not funny. Not funny, yeah. Not funny. More ethnically diverse, though, oddly enough. It is, yeah. It's true. So, not hard, considering what Friends was, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No. No, it's not. Um, yeah. So in any case, um, yeah, the, the five games that you have available are blackjack, poker, slots, roulette and craps. What you would expect from a game like this. And yeah, it, it, it's all real bare bones versions of all those games. Wait, is it? I, I can't even remember now. I, I didn't play much of it. Was it was it Texas Hold'em poker? It wasn't Texas Hold'em. It was like seven card stud. Texas Hold'em exploded like in the odds. Texas Hold'em would have been the thing if this game had been made a decade later. There's not really much more to say about this. I won a little bit of money at a slot machine. I was doing okay at blackjack for a while and then just kind of got bored and bet it all and lost it. And that was just kind of how it went. I, I think you can save your progress in this game, though. You can save your progress, and there is a little bit there's a little bit more going on like around the the, the individual games. Like there are like four different casinos that you can go to, um, you know, which don't really seem to change that much, honestly. But I do think that you need to to win a certain amount of money to to open up the last casino, uh, which I think you can bet like much bigger, much bigger money at essentially. And like, there's a little bit of a transition there where like, if you do make it to that casino, they, they like give you a new hotel room there and it's all big and fancy, which essentially is just the background for like the menu where you're selecting like which friend you want to take or, or, you know, what you want to do. But, you know, there is that. And there are these little interactions with other gamblers, uh, other, other patrons at the casino uh, that happen when you're playing the games. They're, they're, you know, just different kinds of things. Like there is like a pickpocket who will try to steal your money. There's a lady who will ask you to give her a hundred dollars because she needs to feed her baby. And then she apparently wins money with that and gives you some back a little bit later. So, and these just kind of show up as like kind of talking heads over whatever game you're playing sort of randomly, as far as I can tell. 
I saw some kind of interaction on a let's play or a long play of this game where a police officer tells you that he regrets to inform you that the art was counterfeit. And then it said you lost a hundred bucks. And I was like, well, it doesn't seem like, wow, it was that big of a deal. Then maybe if you're buying fancy art that you have to worry about being counterfeit for a hundred bucks, you should just assume it's counterfeit. I don't know. My favorite one of these that, that I encountered was a guy when I was playing roulette, who was like, like, Hey, I know this sounds weird, but I can feel magnetic vibrations in the earth. And it's telling me that the next one is going to be Black 12. If you bet on that, he's totally right. And you can win some money that way. And uh, as a thank you, I think he asks you to give him a little bit. Uh, and you can. So, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so that, that was my favorite one of those just because it was kind of weird. But, yeah, there's not really a ton to this. Like, each casino you go to, unfortunately, the tables and everything all look exactly the same. But there's, like, a different banner across the top of the screen and there's different background music which unfortunately there's only one background song for each casino and it plays on loop endlessly i think that the tables have different colored felt uh in the different casinos as well so you know okay okay oh that's a big difference yeah i was getting tired of that green felt this is some good amber felt right here but yeah that's that's the game really like i think there's a multiplayer game here as well which obviously we weren't able to play but you can play these games i guess with other other people if you if you want to but the main mode here is kind of that adventure mode where you're trying to win 10 million dollars so i did like that uh, apparently again from watching the long play if you do get over 10 million dollars then you beat the game and one of your friends asks, hey, so uh, I guess you just time to make your dreams a reality. What is your dream? And you can type in what your dream is. So I'm curious if we watched the same one of these. What was the dream that the person uh, had? I remember what mine was. The dream was Stab Barney. That's right. That's what it was. I think we watched the same one. It's very good because like the, the dialogue that the, the friend has doesn't change no matter what you put in as your dream. And so you put in Stab Barney in this case, and it's like, great, I'm sure you'll achieve your dream. Let's go make it happen. And and then like after the credits, it's like you have stab you have succeeded. Well, it wouldn't change the the the, the tense, but it's like like you accomplish your dream to stab Barney. I didn't stick around long enough for that. That's hilarious. This was, by the way, this was the Nintendo Complete long play, you know, which thank you very much for putting that up there because I was not going to play like three hours of this game to see the like little bit of dialogue at the ending. They were maybe bringing back the Barney hate, you know, uh, just to put it in that, that correct like 90s frame of mind there. Why do you got to hate Barney? He was dead inside already. That's right. You see those eyes. There's there's nothing behind them. Anyway, we should probably rank this one, huh? Uh, let's go to the list and um, see where we want to put this one. Really nothing wrong with this game, but it's not not really much to it. What do you think about starting at Wheel of Fortune? Uh, Wheel of Fortune is at 146. Oh, and hey, right below that is California Games 2. This is definitely better than California Games. Yeah, definitely. I would say this is better than American Gladiators. Like, this at least technically is what it's supposed to be, which is more than you can say for American Gladiators. 
Yeah, I mean, it all works. There's good explanations of how all of the games play. They tried to do as much with this very simple idea as as they could without really kind of going in a different direction. So as far as very straightforward casino game goes, yeah, they, they did it. How do you feel about this stacked up against the chess master at 134? So I would say probably, even though I would be more likely to play more chess than I, I would most of these casino games as just like a personal preference. Um, I think this has a little more meat on its bones than the chess master. Like I appreciate that, you know, there's a little bit of like a meta game going on here. I appreciate that they tried to do some more stuff to kind of embellish this a bit. Whereas the chess master is a good chess game, but there's really nothing. There, there's almost nothing else happening there. Yeah. Also, uh, it only had one piece of music, and this one has more than that. Also, like, Chess yeah. Master didn't have much in the way of sound either. And uh, no, it did not. Yeah. This game. This game's got some good sounds, like the sound of the roulette ball, like spinning around. I, yeah. I dig that. Keeping with the sort of comparing this to other board game adaptations, we got Monopoly at one twenty eight. How do you feel about that matchup? I think that's getting a little tougher now. At the very least, Monopoly is a pretty involved game. There is a way in which I think Monopoly benefits from being turned into a computer game where, you know, you don't need to keep track of all the pieces, but you can still play a good game of Monopoly with your friends or whatever. I don't know that it helps that I don't I don't really like Monopoly very much as a game. Neither do I, but I will say this. I would probably choose, like, if I had to play Monopoly, like if some weirdo came into my house, pointed a gun to my se- my head and said, hey, you have to play Monopoly in some form. Yeah. I would go with the board game over this Super Nintendo game, probably. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. If somebody told me I had to play some casino games, I would probably prefer not to go to an actual casino and lose actual money and would rather just play this one. So it's got that going for it. So, yeah, maybe let's uh, let's keep going up then, I guess. Yeah, though. I, so right above Monopoly, we've got Uncharted Waters at 127. And I'm not sure I would want to put this above that. What do you think? Not a not a ton of uh, really great presentation there, but an interesting set up for a game and one that I think does have a lot of depth to it. And I think I would rather play it than Vegas stakes. Uh, so yeah, I think this is a good comparison in a surprising way. And I probably would be, I would be good. Yeah. With, with putting this between uncharted waters and monopoly. Uh, yeah. So new one twenty eight. new one twenty eight. Vegas stakes. Congratulations. Vegas stakes. You are our new 128. With that, we've got we've got 190 games on this list. Close to that big 200. Yeah, we are. Big old, big old 200. Um, but before we get there, we need to talk about one last game from May of 93. Folks, you know who she is. She put the miss in misdemeanor. <laughs> she stole the Mekong from the Delta. And she will take you for a ride on a slow boat to China. It's where in time is Carmen San Diego. So here we are. We're in time. It's Carmen Sandiego. This comes to us from Bruderbund and High Tech Expressions, both of whom we have talked about, I think, pretty extensively at this point. I believe so, yeah. But, uh, you know, we haven't really talked about 
our, our titular character, Carmen Sandiego, or the, the series that, that she spawned. Yeah, so uh, lay us down some facts about Carmen Sandiego. Starting with where in the world is Carmen Sandiego, where in blank, I guess you could say, is Carmen Sandiego. is a long-running video game franchise, very popular piece of edutainment software throughout the 80s and 90s, originally created by Bruderbund. Those are the uh, the print shop folks, just in case you forgot. So Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego was the first game, and it would see a ton of sequels, like Where in the USA is Carmen Sandiego? Where in Europe is Carmen Sandiego? Where in time is Carmen Sandiego? Where in space is Carmen Sandiego? Where in America's past is Carmen Sandiego? Where in... North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego. No, I didn't make that up. Please go and check out the great work that the Video Game History Foundation and uh, Frank Cifaldi specifically did in in finding and preserving where in North Dakota is Carmen Sandiego, because that's a cool story. Yeah, yeah. I think it was meant to be a, a, a bigger series consisting of all 50 states, but somehow they only kind of made North Dakota and stopped after that. Starting with a real winner there, North Dakota. Yeah, definitely. I would say apologies to all the North Dakotans out there listening, but hey, come on, if you're from North Dakota, you you know, you understand. You, you know what's up, yeah. Anyway, uh, as popular as those games were, Carmen might best be known as being the subject of three television series, two PBS game shows based on where in the world world and where in time is Carmen Sandiego and a Saturday morning cartoon show called Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego. By the mid 90s, the franchise changed hands from Bruder Bun to The Learning Company and would eventually end up at publisher Riverdeep, which themselves would end up getting rolled into Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which would release a few games sporadically, including the bafflingly 3D action platformer Carmen Sandiego, The Secret of the Stolen Drums in 2004, and the 2015 return to form Carmen Sandiego Returns. Recently, the franchise has seen a revival in the form of a fourth TV series, a cartoon commissioned by Netflix, which ran for four seasons and also uh, consists of an interactive game type thing, which... Uh, I've seen a clip of on YouTube that references that actually uh, has all the characters singing the original Rockapella theme song from the PBS show. That PBS show is very good. If you, if you weren't around for it, uh, I feel sorry for you because I feel like that was that was probably the best game show made for children that that was that that has ever been made. I will definitely say it was the best game show for children not on Nickelodeon. I mean, those ones didn't have Rockapella, though, so. They didn't have Rockapella, and honestly, I feel like every Carmen Sandiego-related thing after that should have had some Rockapella in it, and I'm... A little, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. But yeah, I really liked that show as a kid. I liked this show so much, no joke, I actually made myself a jacket that looked like the jacket that the kids wore as contestants on the game show. And that was my Halloween costume one year. That is a lot of love for sure. My Halloween costume, I think in the fourth grade was just Acme gumshoe. Nice. Very nice. And and yes, I did find a fedora to wear with it. (laughs) Wow. Good job. This game, though, uh, I guess we should talk about it. We're in time as Carmen Sandiego. This, to me, as far as I can tell, seems like a really straight translation of the 1989 computer game version of Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego. And yeah, it is essentially a, a kind of a, a research game, right? That's I guess that's the best way to describe it. 
Yeah, I mean, all of the games have sort of been about, you know, or this the stated goal, I think, has always been, you know, teaching kids about geography or in this case, history. But I think maybe the coolest thing about Carmen Sandiego would have been the fact that most of these games, if not all of them back in the day, came with these little desk encyclopedias that you were meant to sort of research. And the instruction manual for this game on the SNES actually has like a really good breakdown of how to use that encyclopedia. So I think like maybe even more important than teaching kids or giving kids an appreciation for geography and history. This game series was kind of about teaching kids how to be better researchers. And I I think that might have been maybe its greatest contribution to the education of children, um, at least as far as the video games are concerned. Yeah, no, I think that is a very, very cool thing about this. Effectively, the way this works is you are a uh, an agent you are, are an investigator for for the acne detective agency in this game you're traveling through time to try to catch Carmen San Diego and her various uh, extremely punny named accomplices each kind of uh, mission of this game uh, you were told that a a you know, one of the agents of Vile, Carmen Sandiego's nefarious organization, has stolen a particular thing from history. Uh, you know, it could be uh, a king's scepter. It could be Cardinal Richelieu's red robe, you know, anything like that. Uh, you know, the, the nose of the Sphinx, whatever. And you are uh, given a certain amount of time. You're given like a little counter of, you know, how many hours you have left to figure out who did this and and find them and catch them. So you uh, start out going to the kind of scene of the crime, the place and time where the, the theft took place, and you can scan to try to find clues. You can get a clue from a witness or an informant. And then you have a database of information about each of these uh, criminals that you can use to kind of try to figure out who it is. And sometimes you'll get very direct information like, you know, uh, this person, you know, was was reading was reading a book uh, by a great American author. So if you look in their their thing and, and you know, the only one of those that comes up is, uh, you know, this such and such criminal was uh, is a huge fan of Herman Melville. You can use this effectively to kind of narrow down who the the culprit is and the clues you get will always lead you to a new location where you'll be able to find the next clue you'll be able to tell if you're on the right track because a a vile agent will appear really quick i just wanted to touch on those vile agents uh real eclectic bunch absolutely vile must have quite the pr department to recruit such uh, diverse characters as the 1920s mobster and the mongol warrior there's just a lady who uh, a mean lady who runs a diner uh, i think robin hood appeared at one point i don't know maybe we're not on the right side of this thing <laughs> um but yeah and like a lot of times you'll get information that will will require you to do outside research to figure out what you need to be looking at as the next clue. You know, you'll you'll find out something and then you'll need to go and use that included encyclopedia to research the topic to find out kind of, you know, where and when the next clue might be hiding. Uh, you have to find the vile agent in the time. Uh, you send out a little robot to capture them. And, you know, you have to do all this before the timer runs out. Otherwise, you fail the mission and you don't, you don't, the game doesn't end or anything. You just go on to the next one. You do not want to disappoint Lynn Thigpen, okay? 
this gets us into some of the things that I think, you know, are, are problems with the game in a modern context is that a lot of us probably aren't going to have those desk encyclopedias anymore. I actually checked online. Those, the specific editions of those desk encyclopedias that came with this game are quite expensive now, which I, I have to assume is because of their connection to these games. Yeah, I am not at all surprised to hear that. Yeah, vi- video game prices are out of control, you guys. <laughs> we also happen to live in a world where like, you can just Google any of this and immediately get the answer, which kind of takes a little bit away from the whole you know, teaching you how to be a better researcher aspect of the game, which is kind of a bummer. But... Even in the context of when this game came out, I think that there's some problems with it. Uh, for one thing, there's only 12 locations in the game and four time periods per location. And you're also only ever given four location time combination possibilities per each round. It's not going to take you too long before you start seeing repeated clues, and it's going to be pretty easy to figure out where you need to go next just based on one clue, especially in the early game where, like, for example, if you know something happened, you know, if you know a certain historical figure is from Italy, it's not necessarily important to know when they lived because you're probably only going to see one combination that has Italy in it as your available options, making it pretty easy to figure out. Yeah. And also the thing that that started to bug me pretty fast with this is that there's not really any kind of like a curve to the difficulty of these these investigations. Like it's not like they've really kind of, as far as I can tell, tried to give you easier ones as an on ramp and then harder ones with like more esoteric stuff that you really have to research later on. It just kind of feels like a bunch of missions that are all of exactly the same difficulty level. That you're you're you know just sort of handed in in sequence. I will say the instruction manual says that the game gets harder as you rank up, but I don't know how that actually happens. Like, for example, if you know something's in Italy, but all of the options are in Italy, for example, that might make it a little more difficult because now you do need to know the specific time period in which you know uh, the clues are pointing, um, or if the clues do just get harder to follow. I'm not sure. But either way, it never adds more locations or time periods. So it's not like it's going to be that tough. This is designed for kids, you know? Yes. Yeah, that that was just what I was going to say. This is a game for kids. So, you know, that shouldn't be too big a deal. But the, the thing about like there being repeated clues pretty quickly means that even for kids, this is going to get probably pretty easy pretty quickly as long as they're taking notes or remembering, you know, like, what clue is associated with what place and time. I will say this. I think that as far as edutainment software goes, this is a very, very sincerely designed game. Like nothing about this feels like a cynical attempt to kind of like bolt educational elements onto like a normal, you know, video game, you know, video game ass video game. You know, this feels like genuinely this is a thing designed to make kids interested in learning. And that is very cool. Uh, I don't know that the, the based on just like the the execution of it, I don't think that there's a lot here for anybody but actual children. I don't think this is one where like people outside the target age range for this game could really find a lot aside from just finding like the writing in this kind of amusing because it is it's it's a, it's a clever the writing in this is, is quite clever and enjoyable. I don't know that there's a whole lot here for anyone who's not 
actually getting the particular experience out of this that that it was designed to give. I guess, you know, I, I could probably give this a few more compliments. Um, I do really like the UI of this game. It's really simple to use. Uh, I don't know if this game originated on computers that were designed with mouses or if this was designed with, you know, like keyboard controls in mind because it originated, it might have originated on DOS computers. I, I don't. I don't know, actually, but either way, they've done a really good job of adapting this to the Super Nintendo controller. Definitely, yeah. It's cleanly laid out. Everything makes sense, and it's easy to get around. And yeah, I just I think it's a very charmingly put together game. Like there's some great little touches like in the Acme headquarters before you you head out for your time missions. There's several uh, places you can you can visit that have nothing to do with the actual gameplay. Like there's a like a staff lounge where the only thing that happens if you go there is you get a great little animation of like an automatic coffee machine pouring a cup of coffee. And uh, I, I did play this game when I was a very little kid uh, on a computer that my, my father had. And I remember that like indelibly, like I didn't remember a ton about like the actual teaching gameplay content, but I did remember a lot of stuff about like the aesthetics and the the various little kind of bits of, of flavor that are put onto this. That's actually something that stuck out to me as well, because I also remember playing this game with some friends back in the day. And yeah, after playing the game and being bad at it, we went back to Acme headquarters and were somehow very, very entertained by that coffee cup animation and seeing like, oh, is it going to make it this time? Is the cup going to fall over like it does sometimes? It was just from that time period where they would just put like little, you know, doodads in a lot of computer games. And I'm really happy to see that that stuck around for the Super Nintendo port. It's a well-designed game with a lot of really good intentions and some really good ideas, but it it's ultimately limited to the point that I don't know that there's much to be gained from somebody going back to this to play it just like for fun. Yeah, even a kid. Yeah, even a kid. I, I don't know that this would really like grab anybody of any age, honestly, well at this point, but it's a neat artifact of its time and of of ways in which people were thinking about using computer game in a very different way to act as like an educational tool that was still still a fun thing that you could get like excited about, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I I think there is still a place for things like this. And, you know, I'd have to see what that whole Carmen Sandiego Returns game is all about. I hope that whoever has the rights to the Carmen Sandiego license thinks of new fun ways of bringing this kind of gameplay to the Google generation. And with that, I guess we need to rank this one. I guess so. And I'm at a little bit of a loss here. I have no idea really where to where to start with this one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm hmm. I'm having trouble with that, too. Like one thing that this makes me think of is that, you know, like we talked about when we discussed Captain Novelin, um, how, you know, there's good intentions here, but it's not very good at what it's trying to do. And it's just a bad game. Um this has a lot of good intentions and is much better at what it's trying to do and is not a bad game. So I would almost say like Captain Novelin's a good place to start, but it's going to go up so much further than that. I feel like it has to from 155. So maybe it's a bad place to start. Well, I mean, it's a good it's good to have a pretty solid floor for it. And I think that's a very that's a very fair one. Do, do we have any other like trivia games on here or anything like that? Uh, 
not really. I mean, we, we got Jeopardy at 100. Oh, we do have Jeopardy. That's true. Uh, you know, I think this is a better game than Jeopardy, honestly. I do, too. I think this is way better designed for actually being a game and as a thing that that is trying to impart some some good educational habits. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's go up from Jeopardy then for sure. Unfortunately, after that, we kind of run out of stuff that's an easy, uh, easy-ish comparison to make, I think. Okay, so, you know, in this game, you are technically playing Acme Detectives, which means you are technically a cop, and we all know, you know, what they say about all cops. The very true thing that they say about all cops. Another game in which you have to play as cops is Lethal Weapon at 93, and I would much rather be playing this game. Yeah, for sure. So, okay, this is actually one that sticks out to me. I think in some ways we could make a comparison between this and Arcana at number 77, just because they're both very, like, interface-heavy games that are almost about, like, navigating, like, systems of information, in a way. Um, Arcana, of course, you're you're really just, you know, you're doing a dungeon crawler and you're, you're using cards to attack and things like that. But I, I think there is something maybe a little bit similar here that we could compare the two on. I, I think Arcana's got a little bit more going on. I think it does, too. I think Arcana having an actual progression to it, you know, and, and being a little a little bit more focused probably is is a good thing in that case. Okay. Okay, so we've got a ceiling now, so that's that's probably good. I'd probably put this above something like Pro Quarterback at eighty seven. I'd put it above uh Pugsley Scavenger Hunt. I would rather play this than that. I, I would definitely rather play this than the Hunt for Red October. Yep, that's fair. Um Cool World at eighty four. We didn't get very far in that game. Yeah, this this can go above Cool World. I'd be fine with that. Brawl Brothers? Not too impressed with Brawl Brothers. Sequel-ish to Rival Turf, yeah. Yeah, say what you will about Carmen Sandiego, uh, but at least it didn't have, you know, a, an endlessly looping maze level as, like, its second level that was also set in the sewer. Here, here's the thing I will say. Um, not about Brawl Brothers, but about Lagoon, the game above that. I think Lagoon is kind of a... The Lagoon kind of ended up as a, a messed up translation of a game from another another system where they, they did some things to it that kind of hurt the game overall. I cannot say the same thing about Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego. I think this game came through the translation to the Super Nintendo pretty cleanly. Okay. Um, and then we've got... Spider-Man and the X-Men in Arcade's Revenge at 81. That's tough because I did have some fun with Spider-Man and the X-Men. Gambit would make a good Carmen Sandiego henchman. He would make a fantastic. He would just need like a punny last name. I don't know. What do you think? You're you're a big fan of Spider-Man and the X-Men Arcade's Revenge. What do you think of the comparison here? Like, honestly, we're dealing with like two of my favorite things from from childhood here. Carmen Sandiego and X-Men like this is yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I, I think I got to give the edge to Spider-Man and the X-Men because I think the aspects of that game that they get right are good. It's only as low as it is because it's so uneven. Like, honestly, like if the Cyclops level just weren't there, if they just left Cyclops out of the game completely, this game would probably be about like. 20 ranks higher than it is. I, I think that's very true. Yeah, I I, I kind of am thinking the same way. So, yeah, uh, you know what? That sounds pretty good to me. How do you feel about making Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego our new number 82 game? I, I think that sounds swell. All right, let's do it. All right, well, congratulations. Where in Time is Carmen Sandiego, our new 82. You know, pretty good showing for that one, I think. 
Like that is not a bad place to be on this list at this point. There are a lot of games on here that is, you know, that's that's in the upper half. And yeah, so with that, we are uh, done with the episode and we are done with May of 1993, which means the next time you hear from us, we will be talking about a Nintendo Power issue this time from June 1993. I'm excited. I haven't looked at this one at all, so I'm I'm excited to to crack into it and and see what it's got going on. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, well, we hope you join us next time as we look at that Nintendo Power episode. Until then, I'm Indy Zero. I'm Steve Blink. Play it loud. Our intro outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty free at technoax.com. That's T E K N O A X E.com. I once knew somebody named Amber Felt. That's a good name. It's a good name. <laughs> it's like a game, Amber Felt. Amber Felt what? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like like uh, mini series. Um, I, I caught mini series, and it said mini series is going away for a long time. Just gonna say, game mini series is canceled. Was right there, and you left it on the table. What a shame. <laughs>